Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Ray Habersky for New Books in Intellectual History. My interview today is with Ajay Morota. He is a professor of law at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. And his book, Making the Modern American Fiscal State, Law, Politics, and the Rise of Progressive Taxation, 1877 to 1929, is an excellent book. And it is the recipient of the 2013 Society of U.S. Intellectual History Book Award. Ajay is a, a very good thinker. He has written a very rich book. It is full of fascinating personalities, but what perhaps distinguishes it the most is that it is at the cutting edge, the leading edge of new intellectual history because it combines political history, economic history, uh, really well done, well read um, uh, profiles of particular people and institutions, and he writes beautifully. So it's uh, it's a fascinating book that I think will have a, a quite a wide audience. And uh, as we talked about in the interview, should have a lot of influence on um, graduate students and future studies of American fiscal politics. Hi, Ray. Hi, Ajay. Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. Uh, today we'll be talking about your, your latest book, Making the Modern American Fiscal State, Law, Politics, and the Rise of Progressive Taxation, 1877 to 1929. Uh, welcome, Ajay Moroda. I am thrilled Thank to have you, you uh, uh, sit down for this interview. Um, I wanted to also mention that, uh, as we just talked about, that your that your book won the prize this year for Society of U.S. Intellectual History, and uh, which is somewhat curious, since as you said, uh, you had actually uh, put in papers in past conferences and had not been accepted, and yet here you are winning the book prize for the society uh, this year. How do you, how do you explain that? What do you think that means? <laughs> well, that that's an interesting question. I, I wasn't sure that you were going to mention that. Um, well, first, let me say I'm 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 grateful and, and honored to have won the prize. Uh, really, this is, I have been following the society's development since since its beginnings, uh, and I was uh, not able to actually attend the first couple of conferences. I remember because of locations, but then I had a. Um, I had the opportunity to submit or an orphan paper. I, th- I think at least once. I think twice actually, um, and it was not selected. But it was. It was. Uh, for, I, I'm not sure exactly why, but I, I know having been on program committees that orphan papers are hard to integrate into right. into panels, and that's much easier if someone submits an entire coherent panel. So I completely understand that, and I also think that um, I, I guess, and I do think of my work as intellectual history, the history of yes. economic and legal and political ideas. Um, First and foremost, so in that sense, and I know that the the discipline or the subfield of American intellectual history has been evolving over the years. Um, I know certainly when I was in graduate school, and, and I think in the recent past, uh, people didn't really talk about uh, American intellectual history as a subfield. Now, this right. was the sort of dead field of 
of uh, high-minded philosophers, and so it was the field, as I understood it, was moving more towards uh, the cultural circulation of ideas, right. um, rather than sort of this kind of uh, understanding about the internal in, the internal coherency or inconsistency of ideas. You know, we'd moved beyond that. We were now more interested in in ideas as a cultural artifact, um, and so that was really, which I think is a terrific move that the subfield has made over the years. And so I, I, I well, I do do some of that in my work. My work was in some ways more like the political and economic uh, history of ideas that I don't think is tr- old-fashioned. That's that's probably not the right word. Right. I don't want to say it's outdated. Right. Um, but certainly it, it wasn't where the field was going, I think, is a fair way to put it. Um, although I, I, I do think the field has been going in a direction that I think, I mean, certainly I'm a part of this. I see myself as contributing to this and, and being a product of how intellectual and political history mm-hmm. have been combining in many in the last few years. So yeah, absolutely. lots of people, I think lots of them, not just Americanists, but lots of historians who have been interested in state building, for example, an empire. Empire right. is a very important concept in the historical profession right now. Right. Have been interested in the ideas that underpin the development of empires and state building. And so I've kind of, I think I'm a product of, and I hopefully a contributor to the synthesis between sort of a new political history and a new American intellectual history. At least that's how I like to think oh, of my, I, I my com- work. I completely agree. I mean, IJ, the, the reason that we're going to uh, sort of uh, um, profile you and your book uh, at the conference is coming up in a couple of weeks, and uh, it will bro- draw a big crowd, is because you, I, there's no doubt that you are one of the leading exponents of this sort of new intellectual history, you know, which is always when we put a, a moniker on, on a term like that, it's because it combines multiple fields. And uh, we're we're happy that we can claim you at least for now as an intellectual historian. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, no, yeah. for now and forever. I think I yeah. really I, I, I've always this is what attracted me to graduate school and, yeah. and my dissertation topic and and what I wanted to study was really this combination of uh, ideas and, and the law. So I come I come from absolutely the background right. in the law, and right. so in in American legal thought for many years, the, the literature has been pretty high minded uh, about the great ideas of the great jurists and right. how they have <laughs> evolved over time. And at the same time, of course, the American, uh, at least the American historical profession, has been taking a much more bottoms-up yes. kind of social history approach. And right. so I, I like to think I'm sort of operating at that meso level between the two. That you it's are not just no about, about the ideas, but yeah. how the ideas actually first how they're put into put into policy. That's I think I'm what one of my contributions I'm really trying to make is to show how these ideas, mostly of political economists and jurists, but not just them, but right. also populist farmers. Right. I, I right. talk about populist farmers and and labor organizers and how their visions of uh, of a fair and just fiscal order uh, influenced uh, law and public policy, yeah. and then in turn how that law and public policy got uh, operationalized through the administrative states. So I, I think I'm yeah. I am trying to so I. I very much claim myself as, as as part of this movement of new American intellectual history. Well, let, you know, let me you know to sort of go bottom up with your own story. Can you tell yeah. us, you know, how you how you got to this point? You know, what what was your training? Um, uh, what got you interested in the, the kind of topic that you include in this book? Uh, yeah, sure. That's a, that's a great question as well. So, um, so 
so I actually was an economics uh, concentrator in college, mm-hmm. uh, but I was one of these uh, liberal arts lemmings, sort of not knowing what to do, just following the I, – I was par- changing my major constantly, I think. Uh, I, I just turned out that I graduated with a concentration in economics. Okay. But I, I did take a lot of history courses, and including with uh, David Hollinger when okay. he was at Michigan, and Stephen Tonser, a name that most people probably don't know, who's a European intellectual historian, who I had very early in my undergraduate education as a professor – who was just a, a real mensch. Um, yep. hasn't published a lot, but was a real was a dedicated teacher who took a sort of scared and shy sophomore yeah. uh, into a European intellectual history course and just just threw books at me. Literally, I would come to his office hours. Oh, you've got to read this. You've got to read that. <laughs> and um, that was terrific. And that so I, I, I was very much interested in the history of ideas from a very early stage. Um, and then I, I, I did go to law school immediately after. Uh, after undergraduate, but I was still very much interested in, in the history of ideas and legal ideas. And so even in law school, classes on jurisprudence are the ones that excited me. And, and I went, I was lucky enough to have uh, so, sort of interdisciplinary mentors, even in law school, That's sociologists. Yeah. yeah I, the legal historian, Dan Ernst, who I, I have to mention was a real role model for me. Dan yeah. uh, is, is trained both in law and history, a labor historian. Yeah. And so uh, taking doing independent study with Dan uh, was really influential. Mark Tushnet, uh, the constitutional uh, historian, was a, was another important inspiration for me. And so uh, these folks uh, gave me a model of how you could be interested in ideas and, and see how the ideas, again, in action, uh, the application of these ideas was really important. And so after law school, I, I actually thought about going to graduate school in mm-hmm. history, but I, I had some large law school loans to pay off okay. and of that <laughs> sort. And so uh, and I developed some interest in tax. So there was another faculty member when I was at law school at Georgetown who t- taught me a lot about the importance of tax, um, tax law. So I actually worked for a couple of years in, in that field uh, doing some very interesting things. There was a lot of smart people in the corporate world, but um, essentially helping corporate America build the U.S. Treasury is not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so, uh, But I learned a lot about taxation. So when I went sure. to graduate school, um, at a time when there were still the, the ripple effects of some of the historical institutionalism that yes. social scientists were working on. And so there was still a lot of, uh, and this was still probably a good decade after bringing the state back in had been published, uh, the famous volume yep. of essays. Um, but it was having, I think, uh, a resounding effect in, in the world of history. And so I became interested in some of the state building literature. I worked with Bill Novak at the University of Chicago and okay. Bill was one of the Bill and Amy Stanley were one of the reasons why I went to graduate school at Chicago. And I was learning all, I was reading all this literature on state building. I noticed that it was almost always fit, uh, focused on the spending side. So it's all about social welfare policy. Really right. if you go back to, if you go back to, to that volume and, and even a lot of the studies that came out of historical institutionalism. Um, and I was very curious about the other end of the spectrum. Uh-huh. How do you actually raise the money to actually do this kind of spending on, Right. military and and um, social welfare spending. And I realized there wasn't enough literature on that. There was, of course, uh, Sven Steinmo's work in political science uh-huh. and some uh, some other earlier work um, in history. Uh, of course, Elliot Brownlee's work, who I've, who I've gotten to know in his work quite well over the years. Uh, but there was, I thought, a, a real need to kind of talk about and understand how the financing of our modern administrative regulatory right. social welfare state came to be right. and and for me while a lot of it was about the material the law and, and, and administration i was really interested in the ideas that got us there you know how, what yeah. is it this notion that we should have a progressive income tax right. based on 
on the idea of ability to pay. And, and that little phrase plays yes, an important role in my book project. Um, and, and because it really comes, I mean, you, if you take a, a, a tax law class in a law school, for example, it's sort of assumed that, well, we have a system based on ability to pay. And I wanted to investigate, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. Where, did, where, did that, where did that become the, the phrase? That's, that's a wonderful question. Impact. Yeah, it's yeah, a wonderful yeah, question. It's, Simple, yeah, but incredibly profound. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. it really was a very simple question in that sense. And I didn't really know. I mean, I, I, there was some literature on this, but it was, but not, much. It was rather, yeah, yeah. not much. Some of it was rather polemical yeah. um, and written, in some cases, by lawyers or policymakers who were making a very uh, normative, um, taking a normative position on the, on the stance. And my goal was to, to, to apply historical analysis in a more objective way to figure out, well, who were the key figures and how did they, not only did they, how did they come up with the ideas, not only, only the origins. And again, this is where I, I think this is part of the new intellectual history, not just ideas, but ideas in action, right. um, was to see how did they then get these ideas out of the academy and, 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 and union halls and, and farmer associations where, again, it, was, it wasn't just the high-minded political economists, although they were, they were the harnessing force, I argue, in the book. But you know, this was a sort of groundswell of view about changing the fiscal order. And then in the process, as I was doing the research, realized that, that, that these folks were really trying to do more than just change the tax. System, and that's something else I yeah. try to argue yeah. in my book. It really was a new vision about a different kind of polity, yes. and, and and therefore a different kind of relationship between subject and sovereign, between individual and state. Uh, and so yeah. that so yeah. these notions of citizenship then started sprout, uh, sprouting up in the primary sources that I was looking at. Them. I said, well, gee, you know, this is a this is a book about taxation, but it's really not. I mean, taxation is just the lens; it's just the window into uh, this really critical and pivotal period of state formation in which notions of civic identity and administrative power are all kind of wrapped up together. And, and so that's what I wanted to explore. Yeah. So in some ways, the book really is a nice confluence of a lot of my earlier interests in training and education. Yeah, I mean, one of the things after reading the book that I felt that I could, I could go into a classroom and teaching a, a general a second half of the U.S. survey right now and talk to the students in a much more sort of clear way about the relationship between ideas and institutions, the way that that people, individuals carry ideas with them Mm -hmm. into the Mm -hmm. institutions and change institutions, the way that you have Mm -hmm. these sort of punctuated moments, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. sort of like Mm -hmm. the complexity theory punctuating equilibriums. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I I thought, you know, this, and and all through uh, the debate over tax, over how to, I don't know, the state commands people to do different things. This is one of the things that it does. And uh, some people, I mean, it's very easy in some ways to talk about the military, but I think you've actually discovered uh, the uh, cognate to that, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Mm -hmm. to create community, to create uh, citizenry, you need to tax. So I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this, the dividing line between what came before ability to pay and why the idea of ability to pay changed the way we thought about each other in many ways through our, our tax system. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the way I chronicle this transformation in the book um, is that the, the early – so there is – So I, to, to be honest, I don't think it's fair. And I try to be I – try, I try to have this nuance in the book, but mm-hmm. now having – read the book and talked about it to lots of people. Yeah, let, me, yeah. let, me, let me underscore the, the, the point about trying to be more nuanced. In the late 19th, or at least in the 19th, late 19th century, there, I don't think there is one coherent ideology to contrast okay. with ability to pay. So yeah. I, I don't want to create a kind of binary that it was one thing and then shifted to another. Okay. There was an amalgamation of justifications and ideology for why we should have a protective tariff, for example, right. or why at the subnational level we ought to have a property tax. Right. The thread that I try to pull out of that 
out of that amalgamation, especially certainly at the subnational level, I think also at the national level, is this notion of benefits. Okay. So there really is in this early, in the earlier period, uh, in, in the ancient regime, as I try to describe it, yeah. this notion that the state has this sort of reciprocal responsibility with individuals. So individuals make a payment through tax yeah. and they get public goods, right? This very kind of what I call a commodified view of, of state society relations, right? And I, I think in the book I use um, Cooley, um, Justice Cooley is right. one of the exemplars of this. And I think if you go back to his treatise, as I try to show, he's reflective. He's not the only one, but he's reflective of the mindset that taxation really is this kind of quid pro quo between the state and the individual citizens. Yeah. And that changes at the turn of the 20th century. And as we already know from all all the fine work that other intellectual historians have already done that you know, the, the turn of the century is when we start thinking because of the industrial revolution and all the dramatic changes that are occurring, a greater sense of interdependency, yeah. right? It's no longer about the independent self or individual. There is this greater concern about how, how individuals are embedded in a much broader social, political, and an economic uh, environment. And so I, I certainly play off of that and, and try to show how taxation, in a sense, is reflective of that. So as we make this dramatic shift to a greater inter interdependent world in which there's recognition of this, uh, you start seeing people wondering, you start seeing political economists. So the political economists become my, my sort of harness or voice for this. Right. But, but they really are, are bridging a gap between the masses and the educated sort of policymakers. They, I, I try, at least try to I mean, the kind of Leon Fink sense of the right. progressive era intellectuals playing this critical bridge building role. And, and what they come up with is, well, wait a minute, maybe if, if we live in a more interdependent world, then maybe it is not simply about a quid pro quo. Maybe mm -hmm. there are maybe citizenship entails these kinds of ethical duties and obligations that we then ought to see reflected in policy. Yeah, fascinating. And the yeah. policy I really focus on is tax policy. Right. So the political economists, Seligman and Richard Ely, and um, and, um, and the two Adams I have, I have um, yeah. Henry Carter, as well as uh, Thomas S. Adams uh, in the project, really push for this notion that uh, the benefits theory of taxation is sort of obsolete in a world in which the state is everywhere. Right, so there's right. also this recognition that because of interdependency, that it's not just the state providing pure public goods, as we would say today. It's not just about defense, which was the which was the the pro dominant rationale Absolutely. for taxation. Right, yeah. you pay yeah. taxes because the state protected you. Right, right, right. Protected you. Is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. As, an, as, so, a, as a people, as an industry, yeah, right. Exactly, exactly. And so that, and 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 what the progressives uh, are arguing is that no, in a liberal democracy, there's much more that a state ought to do, uh, care for the general welfare of the commonwealth. Yeah. And so, if that's the case, well, then maybe there's a greater obligation on the wealthy, for example, right? So there's a there's a material aspect to my story in the sense that this is a a, a story about redistribution, but not a not a redistribution of a radical redistribution distribution of wealth, but at mm -hmm. least the redistribution of responsibility in yeah, and, the sense and, of who's going to underwrite the, the modern state. I mean, it seemed to me reading it that this was also a book about modernity and coming yes. to sort of terms with the idea of the modern world. 
Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and that's what I mean by by, by the, the the greater awareness of an interdependency. Yeah, that it was no longer um, this sort of pre-modern view of the of the individual and, yeah. and the self doing everything, and therefore only having to provide taxes for the direct benefits they receive from the state. Where did this come so, from? Where did these ideas? Where did the the, the sort of the leading um, proponents of of your your argument for the you know, how these guys are carrying these ideas forward? Where did they get these ideas? Where, how did they come to terms well, with them? So, so I think it's a combination of and then in the book, I, I've been these political economists, and this is the Dan Rogers story about Atlantic crossings in yeah, many ways. Right. <laughs> they're, they're, they're all they're all German trained, just about all okay. German trained. At least the ones I focus on, the pivotal ones in tax policy, are spending a significant amount of their of their edu- early formative education in Germany, yeah. um, learning at the foot of the German historical school uh-huh. of, of of political economists and looking at Bismarck's social welfare state and seeing, oh my goodness, you know that, that there are all these positive things that the state can do and of course they bring that back and you know there's this famous uh, scene in the creation of the American Economic Association where Richard Ely, this is well documented mm-hmm. in, in Dorothy Ross's work and Mary right. Ferner's work as well as Jim Kloppenberg's that uh, that Ely in particular really pushes the notion that economics ought to be about the study of state power because the state is an ethical agency. That's the phrase he That's uses. Amazing. Yeah. Right. And it gets struck in out of the out of the out of the charter. But but there is this debate about about state power at this time. Uh, and again, part of it is is this influence of European ideas. But I, as, I, as I try to point out in the book, uh, the political economists are, are true historicists. They, yeah. they know that the context matters and they know that they're not going to transplant wholesale Bismarckian social welfare state to the United <laughs> States, you know, late 19th, early 20th century liberal America. Right. And so they have to mold their, uh, the, their acceptance of these ideas. They have to frame them in a particular American idiom, um, which, which yep. then I, I try to trace you know, says that wait a minute. The notion of ability to pay and progressive taxation—that's not a German idea. Yeah. Look, you can you can go back to Adam Smith. So there's this there's this Anglo-American tradition that they appeal to. You can go back to some of the key American uh, economists who preceded them to talk about how there is this as society changes, the forces of modernity um, impinge upon uh, upon thinking upon policy. Um, the tax policy ought to change as well. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's so interesting. The terms that I, I didn't expect to discover in a book on, on uh, basically fiscal history. Yeah. Uh, I mean, progressivism, I sort of understood that this would be a theme because of the period. But the idea of charity changes. Ah, yeah. Uh, the idea of yeah. community evolves. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I know that you've been working in this area for, for a bit. Uh, yeah. were, were you surprised in some ways that those were terms or themes that started to emerge out of – out of your work? Yeah, no, I, I was too. As, as, as I was saying earlier, I, I, I began thinking about this was going to be a, a, a story about ideas and then I, ideas about material issues, funding the state. Yeah. And then, and, and then, how those ideas then get picked up by key lawmakers and policymakers. But the, but the, and this is where the notion of fiscal citizenship was very helpful. To okay. Me because yeah. as yeah. I was looking more at these political economists and public intellectuals who are pushing for a progressive income tax, they are doing it with these words about community, and how community entails greater ethical duties and obligations, particularly on the well-to-do. I mean, that was the really interesting part about all this, right? Mm-hmm. That it's that it's about, I mean, especially the way these ideas then get uh, translated into law and policy, yeah. the early income taxes is, is a rich man's tax. It's yeah. really just the super wealthy are going to pay it. 
but it's part of this notion of a, of a as you suggest, a greater sense of community and, and looking out for the Commonwealth. Yeah. That they have done better, and that they are they have the, as a result a greater obligation to give back, um, and then it does spread out. So, so I'm, I'm not sure. You actually mentioned something very, very interesting about uh, so notions of charity. I, I mean, I, so I guess I did. I don't see that right now. So it'd be, I'd be helpful for my for my future work hmm. if you can tell me a little bit more about where you think you see charity in this book. If you don't mind me asking, turn, can yeah. I turn the table? Yeah, yeah sure, sure. Yeah, law I'm, professors do this all the time. Right? Of course, but, yeah, but, right. no, but I, but I'm, but I'm no, but I'm curious because I'm. I'm, I'm doing some new work on nonprofit stuff, okay. kind of dividing line between uh, profit and nonprofit corporations. Yeah. So yeah. I'd be very curious to see what where you saw the charity element in my story. I'm thinking about it in terms of of uh, well, one of the one of the areas I didn't see you do a whole lot with was religion, and it, it yeah. seems it seems yeah. to me no, but but at the same time, I, I what I liked about this was that I, that is an, an area. Um, Religion doesn't have to be sort of pigeonholed into a particular box, right? And the idea of charity, mm-hmm. I think, in the, in the late 19th, early 20th century was a very important one in many churches, especially the Catholic Church. But mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. point of having that sort of idea in those churches was not so that it would stay within the pews, but that it would, would seep into um, the larger community. If, if, the, if the Catholic Church was going to actually provide any sort of contribution to American thought, uh, it was going to be through this idea of charity, Primarily uh, because it, <laughs> they had so many low-income, uh, you know, sort of relatively new immigrants, yeah. and they were trying to figure out what the, what community would look like. I mean, they could not stay in the ghetto forever, right? They could not yeah. become, they could not re- remain sort of the um, the poles and the Italians and, and the Irish mm-hmm. uh, set aside, set apart from everybody else. So I think their the idea of charity was both quite quite internal to them, but is also something that that I think many Catholic uh, writers at the time try to suggest was part of this larger progressive era movement to redefine community. And and charity was not simply sort of giving money to those who are in need, but being charitable in a much larger, uh, almost idealistic sense. Right. That's a very interesting observation. Yeah, I know you're absolutely right. I mean, I I, I do talk a little bit about the social gospel movement. Yes, absolutely. It's protagonist um, and the important role, because they are advocates of progressive tech. Right. But but, but you do, you raise a really interesting point about how this notion of duty and obligation, uh, again, something that, that, Historians of the Progressive Era have written about for a very long time, but how it crosses over beyond just um, the, pu- the, the public realm, right. beyond just uh, state building, but building community within within churches. That's a that's a really big. I'm going to have to think more about that and how I can integrate that more into my into my new work. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, but I, I guess my question would then be: So, what is this new work, and how is it uh, <laughs> how is it connected to the stuff that this has just come out? Yeah, good question. So I, I, I'm kind of toying with uh, the next major book project, because as, as, as everyone knows, that when historians write books, it takes a lot longer than it does in other fields. And so <laughs> right. committing that time, right. especially given the time it took to finish this last book, took me yeah. a lot longer than I thought it would. Um, so I'm not quite sure what exactly the big project is, but I have been writing more recently about, and these are outgrowths of, of the book project. Um, for example, I'm working on something now on, on corporate taxation. And so this is why right. you're, you're comment right. about charity was very interesting to me because um, in the in in the first half of the 20th century at least uh, the taxation of business corporations is a very interesting story and one that's not often told because it's not just about raising revenue to fund a modern state and fund uh-huh. military because obviously World War one World War two are important but but as I try to talk about in, in, in the book project 
corporations are seen as legal persons in certain areas. And so these notions of sort of our modern notion or contemporary notion today of, of corporate social responsibility, I think in some ways can be traced back to some of these earlier periods in which taxation plays a role in, in suggesting that, cor- that corporations, qua corporations, are citizens in some ways in right. our community. Right. And therefore, they have an obligation and a duty as well to at least, one, give back in the form of taxation, um, but then this notion of this broader notion of charity and, 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 and community, I think, is also important. So I haven't developed that latter part, but I am working on, on a co-authored paper with a colleague of mine um, looking at corporate taxation and the regulation of modern business yeah. in the early 20th century. So again, kind of combining, again, my interest in intellectual and legal history with that's a little excellent. bit of uh, business yeah. history now. Yeah, yeah that's excellent. So uh, how has the response been to the book? Um, pretty good so far. I mean, as you know, it takes a while for the, the academic journals to, to get right. the, uh, the reviews out, but um, but there have been a couple of reviews online, um, and, in, in, and surprisingly to me, in, in yes. a in a tax trade journal. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not I, surprised. Know, I, I, I didn't think this would exactly appeal. Well, I, I mean, I, I do teach in a law school, so I, I like to think that, that, that tax lawyers and tax professionals ought to be aware of their history. Oh, I think they're um, going to love the book, honestly. I mean, you make well, sort of heroes out of some of their, I don't know, forebearers yeah, in a sense, no, that's right? Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, especially the lawyers section. Yeah, I think, I yeah. Think, I think the tax bar would like to know about what, what Arthur Ballantyne and yep. others did to help build um, this modern fiscal polity. Yeah. And, and point, yeah. I mean, financial journals. Have you had uh, some responses in in yeah, the business? Not world? yet. Not that I have. I mean, I you know, I, you tell the press who you think is going to be interested, and so the book gets sent out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I I have I don't know of any. At least I mean, I would think okay. at this point I would I would have heard about it. But yeah. So I think it's. I mean, it's, it's been about a year now. It's, okay. it's out in paperback now. So yeah. I'm thinking, hoping a more affordable paperback might get it into more people's hands and um, maybe uh, get some more responses. But I've I've done a couple of author meets readers panel at conferences, and I'm gonna, as you know, I'm going to do yeah. one at, um, at the Society for Intellectual History in a couple of weeks, so I'm yeah. looking forward to that. Uh, but so far, yeah, the reception's been pretty good. I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased and, and surprised in some ways. It, it has been so, so positive, but I'm, I'm, I'm elated. I mean, one of the things that I, that, that I think would lend uh, itself to discussion among uh, folks in the business community is that, I mean, you have uh, not prescriptive, but I think you do have contextual ideas that they might consider in, in some of the debates today, right? I mean, how we fund things and why we fund things today. So yeah. I, I'm curious, have you had any any interactions like that where people say, well, the income tax uh, was a bad idea to begin with, or there should be a flat tax, or, you know, the rates are either too low or too high? I mean, have you... Have you entered into any of those discussions with? Yeah, a little bit. So I've I've tried to do I take my, do my hand in a little bit of op ed writing. So okay. I've tried, tried to do it in that way and and just get out the get out the ideas to a broader public yeah. that there was this moment in American history when we actually believed in progressive taxation. <laughs> I mean, people supported it. Well, that and that's the thing, right? Is that yeah. it, in some ways it falls on deaf ears uh, today because I, you know. Obviously, things have changed dramatically yeah, yeah. Um, since the 1970s. We are in a very, and I try to, in the conclusion of the book, you do. I try, nice to, job. I try yeah. to point out of, of how, in many ways, I am writing about this sort of lost moment in American history when yeah. we really did believe in public power, had faith and confidence in the state, and wanted to contribute to it because we thought it was actually maybe not an ethical agency, but certainly a positive God, agency right, in, right. in the human welfare. And that that 
doesn't ring true today. And so when I do get into these, uh, when I do write these op-eds, usually I, I, I get a lot of angry letters. Um, you oh, know, that's that I'm a socialist, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. and yeah. that you know, all progressive taxation is wrong, mm-hmm. and you know, we ought to abolish the IRS. And and what is and their basic? What's their basic argument for that? Is that the state doesn't know what is best for the individual, or that people are going to exploit it, and therefore it, it's my money will be lost in a way that it shouldn't be otherwise? I mean, what is it? Yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's a lot of those things. And if we bracket sort of the lunatic fringe, which you know, right. for whom it's so facto. <laughs> The state is evil. <laughs> yeah, right. Let, right. Let's just bracket those folks. Right. That's obviously not going to. I think the more thoughtful conservative response has been, and not just to me, but to everyone who still writes, you know, <laughs> that we ought to right. have a public, a robust public sector. Right. It, it is, is the, is, I think, the, the usual kind of Tea Party and conservative mm-hmm. rallying cries that it's all fraud, waste, and abuse, right? Yeah. That, they're, that, they're, yeah. that the growth of the, the Leviathan is out of control. It actually does not, it does more work. You know, get government off our back, right? The yeah. Reagan refrain is, I think, still very much with very, us. Very, very important. Absolutely. Yeah, although there's a, but there's a counter-narrative, right? And that's yep. what I think I'm trying to do, and I think a lot of other folks who are writing about the state, um, and not just in the progressive era, other times, to suggest that, wait a minute, one, we didn't always all think this way. That's right. right. So, there, so very a lot important. Of people people yeah. like to, this is, and this is, yeah, this is, and maybe I don't do it enough in the conclusion, but I really, and, I, and I've been thinking about this since the beginning of, of this book project is you know, we ought to often draw a direct and straight line from you know the revolution and then the original Tea Party to Newt Gingrich you know yep. and, and all the other conservatives all the way through to the Tea Party today as if American history has always and everywhere been anti-statist and anti-tax yeah. and that's just wrong yeah. right I yep. mean and that's what I think uh, us historians are good at is reminding folks that there's a much more complicated historical narrative um, that you have to grapple with. Um, There were moments in time when people were believed in shared sacrifice, another phrase that Um, comes up a lot in the book project. I would Um, say for a much longer time and for many, many more people. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and, And so, you know, I'm not trying to be clairvoyant or a prophet about whether we're ever going to go back to that kind of thinking, but yeah. at least one, one of the prescriptive or the kind of quasi-normative parts of my book is at least to remind readers that we haven't yeah, always and everywhere been anti-status and right. anti-tax. Right. That's, no, it's, it's that, a great that, benefit of the my, book. Yeah. yeah, that's one of my, I hope, one of my big upshots, or so, my big takeaways. So I want to ask you one more question, and then it has something to do with my own uh, experience traveling abroad. I lived in Denmark for a year uh, as a Fulbrighter, yeah, 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 and of course they have a very different type of tax system, right? And, and uh, when I talk about it, people are sort of dumbfounded that, you know, 60% of uh, the top salaries are, are taken away in some sort of tax. and But yet what I saw there, it, it seemed to me, was that the tax system functioned sort of like a civil religion to people. You know, they believed uh-huh. in it in a way that I don't think I've, I've ever heard, at least in my lifetime, I've heard Americans, uh, the way they speak about the tax system. And, um, and of course, the social welfare system is pretty deep there, but it's not, it doesn't have that long of a history. And I'm, I'm just mm-hmm. curious, do you have... Any sense of a comparative yeah, point no, of view no, on this? Absolutely. This is a this is a really important, and as you know, I, I do mention this in in the bookends of you know the intro yeah. and the conclusion of the book. I do try to take a comparative perspective because I think there is uh, a, a telling irony or paradox about the triumph of the ability to pay logic okay, in the yeah. early twentieth century, yeah. and that is that we've become then fixated on the income <laughs> tax and a progressive income tax. Because if you look at, I mean, if you look at the comparative political economy literature, the U.S. actually has a very progressive tax system at least 
pre-1980 yes. compared to other Western industrialized nations. You know, right. We see data shows, right? We actually have a rather robust progressive tax system up until the 80s. Yet, we don't do as much for poverty, right? right. And right. So there's this kind of paradox or question about why. And so I try to make the argument, again, this is somewhat speculative in the book. I, I, I don't demonstrate this, but that, that there's this path-dependent moment. So in the early 20th century, when the ability to pay logic is gaining steam and when it's being translated into policy, it kind of leads to this fiscal myopia that I refer to in the book, that we think of income taxes and progressive taxation as the, way, as, as the only way in which we can address some of these larger social dislocations that come with modern capitalism. Yeah. But then if you look if you look comparatively though, especially the Scandinavian countries are always held up as the as a model. Right. Incredibly regressive tax system, right? <laughs> so there's a VAT. There's a right. value added tax right. in Sweden that's as high as fifty percent on just about everything. everything. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing, right? Yeah. And you, if you were to just look at the tax side, you'd say, Oh my gosh, you know, it's the Americans who who are much more progressive and forward thinking. Yeah. But then but you've got to tie the, the tax with the spending side. Yeah. And so of course if you look at the Scandinavian countries, they have an enormous amount of social welfare spending. Right? Right, right, and we do not. And I don't want to suggest that it all goes back to ability to pay, but I think the, the ability to pay does kind of lock in American thinking in this, in this, as I say in the book, on, in this kind of myopic way that that it's hmm. really just about the tax side. And we're, we don't think as holistically, I think, about tax and spending together as some of our comparative neighbors in, in Scandinavia, for example. So let me ask you, why? I mean, what, where, why the disconnect uh, develop as uh, almost as hard and fast as it is? Yeah. So, I mean, again, I don't want to, I don't want to over, over determine no, right, right, the importance right. of ideas. It's not just about ideas. Right. Um, certainly, institutions are important. Yeah. Institutions are absolutely critical. Yeah. Junko Cato is another uh, historical institutionalist has written about this. Yeah. And so, the, and, and there's a whole, so there's a whole bunch of reasons. It's not just about ideas. It's, it's certainly about our constitutional design. Right. The many veto points that we have. We have a parliamentary system. Right. The winner takes all. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So there's a whole bunch of, of, of other reasons why we've, I think, become locked into this. And again, though, as a historian, I'd like to think that because these things are contingent, That's right. none of this is inevitable <laughs> or right. natural, neutral, and necessary. And it can right? change. We, and, could, yeah. we could change this. Yes. Exactly right. Yes. And I guess the other upshot of my book is to demonstrate to people that, wait a minute, um, you know, we happen to go down this paradoxical or ironic path, but that doesn't mean we have to stick with it. Yeah. Right? We, we could given changing historical conditions and today's dire need for revenues and, and increased healthcare spending down the road, we might think about something like the value-added tax. Yeah. Now, Ajay, this has it's been uh, great to talk to you. This is an incredibly rich book that has uh, oh, a, lot of, a lot of dimensions to it that I think that people will be reading for uh, quite a few years to come. And I'm sure there are a bunch of dissertations waiting to come out of it, you know, for, well, for students. I really, that, that's, that's, that's the truest honor. You just it really, this, yeah. you know, it gets on some reading lists and maybe some dissertations. But this, yeah. Yeah, this, has been, this has been a terrific interview. Thank you very much, Ray, for the time. I've really enjoyed uh, this discussion. My name is Ray Haberski, and you've been listening to New Books in Intellectual History, an interview with Ajay Marota and his new book, Making the Modern American Fiscal State, Law, Politics, and the Rise of Progressive Taxation, 1877-1929. to 1929.